I love it and love it and appreciate it and, and grow more fond of it um, more and more every day. Uh, specifically, I hope two things happen. I, I truly hope that we'll begin to have a greater love for God's church and obviously for this church, but for His people. Um, but secondly, I hope that we strive to be more committed than ever before to God's church and to specifically Harvest Bible Fellowship. Um, I love my church. I think I attend the greatest church on the face of the earth. Um, I take a special sense of pride, and I hope you do too. Obviously, this is God's church. We belong to Him. Um, But in all honesty, I'd just soon be at this church for the rest of my life as any other church I've ever been to. Is it perfect? No. (laughs) You know me. I messed it all up when I got here. Um, And so did you, by the way. Because we're all sinners, saved by grace. And there are none of us that are perfect. And um, we all think we're right when it comes to how we do things. And and we all think we've got the quote-unquote balance of how far to go this direction or how far to go that way. And what to allow and what not to allow. And what we invest in, what we don't invest in. It seems like we all have the answer. And ultimately, we are sinners saved by grace striving to please God and bring glory to Him in all things. But He's working with some messed up people, in all honesty, right? He's, he's messed up with people that have flaws and uh, prejudices and, and, and made mistakes, and I'm so thankful that He does. Um, but I want to begin today by addressing a question that possibly many of you are thinking. Why do we need a class or a series of messages on membership? Why in the world would that be lesson one? Why would that be uh, important to us as a body of believers to talk about membership? I mean, after all, you don't even find membership in the Bible. I mean, it's not in there. I mean, I don't think uh, any of us are going to say, you know, uh, goodness, I don't even find the word membership listed anywhere throughout the Old Testament or the New Testament. Well, um, it may not be there in word, but it's definitely there in principle. We'll get to that in just a moment. But my request for many of you today, and I know that as I'm here this morning, uh, some of what I say over the next ten weeks may be misconstrued. I pray not. I know that some of you may not like what I say, but I have one request, that you listen with an open mind and ask God to teach you what He wants you to learn. Um, So, as I said, you'll not find any verse in the Bible that specifically states Thou shalt join a church and become a member thereof. It's not in there, in those words. Um, However, in principle, teaching regarding your church membership is ingrained throughout the New Testament. So we're going to start this morning first with a word of prayer, and then I'm going to begin by giving you some examples of how the principles of membership are found intrinsically throughout the New Testament. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. We thank you for your many blessings in our lives. And, Lord, just the freedoms that we have to be part of a local body of believers. Uh, the church, as we call it today, uh, the ecclesia, the called out ones, those who uh, place their faith and trust in you, dear Father. Thank you for the privilege that we have to come before you. And as a body of believers, to worship you and to exalt you and to lift your name high. To know, Lord, that you are with us. Lord, we just say thank you. And we ask that you meet with us this morning, Lord, to speak to our hearts. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, I want to I want to give you several examples or inferences of church membership found in God's Word. And specifically, we're going to talk about three areas before we branch out a little bit further in the message. But the first one is found in church leadership. Um, so if you would, take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to read a very familiar passage of Scripture, uh, verses 11 through 16. Uh, I know that they're um, similar in all the translations. I use the Holman Christian Standard Version. Um, but it's amazing how different they are in some of the translations. But the idea is the same. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, it says this there, uh, verse, verse 11, excuse me, says, And he personally gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Why? Verse 12, For the training of the saints in the work of ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son. Growing into a matter, a mature man with a stature measured by Christ's fullness, then we will no longer be little children tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning and cleverness in the techniques of deceit. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ, from him the whole body fitted and knit together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body for building up itself in love by the proper working of each individual part. Um, there are several verses, that, there are several statements that are made throughout that. But it very clearly states here, as Paul is writing this book, that God has a purpose behind giving the leadership that he has. And quite honestly, it is for the equipping or for the training of the saints. That's the believers. Those who place their faith and trust in Christ to do the work of the ministry. But it's amazing here that throughout God's Word, uh, God intended leadership to be responsible to the church. Uh, if there were not pockets of believers throughout various towns and villages and all across the continents of the world, there would be no need for leadership. But see, God has orchestrated in the various pockets, in various towns, in various villages, bodies of believers. And God says it's not good that they be alone. It's good that they have leadership. And so by the very nature of the fact that God gave leadership, it presupposes the fact that they are leaders of somebody. And they're leaders of those bodies of believers. Um, throughout Scripture, in fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we see just over... A couple of books to the right, First Timothy chapter 3. In fact, almost the entire chapter, listen to this, says this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to be an overseer, he desires noble work. An overseer, therefore, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, sensible, respectable, hospitable, and able teacher. Not addicted to wine, not a bully but gentle, but not quarrelsome, not greedy, one who manages his own household competently, having his children under control with all dignity. And if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, uh, know, know how he... Um, how will he take care of God's church? He must not be a new convert, or he must become. Cons- or he, he uh, reading too fast. He might become conceited and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Furthermore, he must have a good reputation among outsiders, so that he does not fall into disgrace and the devil's trap. So not only that, he gives not only the office and a person who aspires to be leadership in that office. He says this, uh, these are the characteristics that must be in his life. 
So very clearly, because God gave leadership, He gave the leadership to somebody, and the somebody is the body of believers that they are to lead. And that is a church. And what makes them become part of the church? As they join and become part of that local assembly. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. And then he goes on, verses 8 through 8, the following there, and talks about the deacons, how likewise they have certain qualifications and uh, distinguishes uh, that they, distinguishments that they must have in their life that separates them from the average person. And God has very clearly gave them to the body, the church. And then we see kind of a little bit twist on the whole idea. Not only did God give leadership, He gave people to the leadership. How do we know that? Once again, in Hebrews chapter 13, take your Bibles and turn there. It's an important passage. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17. He says, obey your leaders. Who's he talking to? The body of Christ. The believers in local assemblies across the world. And uh, spotted in towns and villages uh, throughout every continent. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account so that they can do this with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So God not only gave leaders to churches, He gave the body of Christ, those who were part of the church, to leadership, to obey, to submit to. Why? To carry out the work that God has entrusted to us to go to do. So that's very clear. And in First Peter chapter five, verse three, uh, just over a couple more pages to the right. So not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So once again, we're to obey the leaders that God gives us, and the leadership is not to lord it over them and say, Well, bless God, I'm the leader, you do what I say. That's unbiblical. But on the other hand, a biblical leader understands his responsibility and what has been entrusted to him, and therefore he takes it with great responsibility and understands that he will give an account for how he leads that group. And that's a very, very awesome task. And um, it's not one to be taken lightly. So two things that we can very clearly understand about church for leadership is that number one, God intended leadership to be responsible to the church, or for the church. And it's a great responsibility. And number two, God intended the church to be responsible to the leadership. And church, churches and church leadership were established in many towns. For example, as we go forward, you're gonna see that there's the church at Corinth. It's a very specific group, a very specific body of believers. So there was a church at Corinth. Then there's a church at Ephesus. There's a church at Thessalonica. You get the idea. And throughout the New Testament, we find local bodies of believers who are gathered together to be the organism, the growing organism that God intended them to be. Um, we can almost say there's the church on Calkins Road. Um, there's a church on you know, Jefferson Road. The church, it describes where the body of believers meet and gather together um, so that Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 can take place. So, there were former, I'm sorry, formal local assemblies. And we need to understand that. But not only that, uh, and the whole idea and the concept of a church and why there would be membership, there is not only committed uh, church leadership, but there is committed congregations. 
In fact, we find this in Acts chapter 2. Go ahead and turn your Bible there. It's a familiar passage, probably uh, of all the passages on churches uh, that we find in Scripture, probably one of the most common passages is found in Acts chapter 2. And beginning with verse 41, it says this, So those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. Then fear came over everyone, and many wonders and signs were being performed throughout the, through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had a need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. So we find that this process was taking place not just in one town, but in towns across the country, in houses across the country. So everywhere they went, there were local bodies, local assemblies that people became part of. And so even though it does not say the word membership, we understand through its inference that membership was a natural part. In fact, I don't think anywhere throughout Scripture do you find uh, you know, the whole principle of being a Lone Ranger Christian. God did not call us to that. He called us that once we were saved, once we had placed our faith and trust in Him, to join that local assembly so that we might be taught, so that we might be trained to do God's work. In other words, we're not just saved just to escape the fires of hell, right? We understand that. In fact, if that's our purpose in joining, I would have to question our salvation. It's not just as insurance. The whole idea behind a relationship, uh, behind becoming a child of Christ is to have a developing, growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And relationships are important. So at Corinth, at Ephesus, at Thessalonica, at Pergamum, at Thyatira, all these places where God's Word describes churches, the function of the church was taking place in the context of local assemblies. So there were committed congregations. And what did these congregations do? Well, we saw them. Uh, they've devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings. They were concerned about truth. The very things that the apostles were taught, of, taught by Jesus Christ himself were then taught to those bodies and assemblies. Um, to fellowship. To the breaking of bread. We understand communion. Say, so, well, just because a body of believers gets together, does that constitute a church? No, it does not. And we'll look at that in just a couple of weeks, what the actual definition of a church is. So just because you're a believer and he's a believer that come together, does that make a church? And absolutely not. You may be part of the church, but that does not constitute a church. A church must have, if I can say it very bluntly, uh, they have to observe the two offices, communion and, and baptism. Without that taking place, there's not a formal body of believers. So in the context of it, there are aspects of membership that are taking place here. Um, If you go over to Acts chapter 16, uh, and verses 1 through 5. Then he went on to Derbe and Lystra, where there was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him, so he took him and and circumcised him, 
because of the Jews who were in those places, since they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they traveled through the towns. They delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders of Jerusalem for them to observe. So the churches, plural, were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. So there were churches in all these little towns. Uh, so that not only was there church leadership, there were committed congregations in various locations throughout these towns. So over and over we see the principles that there are churches that were formed, people that formed those churches, leadership, and so forth. And here's what's interesting. If there was not a formal aspect of membership, why would letters be sent from one church to another concerning someone's moving from one place to another? In fact, that's a practice that is still practiced by many congregations today. Oftentimes when a family comes into the body of Christ, they'll come into the Harvest Bible Fellowship and they grow with us and they learn to love, we learn to love them, they learn to love us and we begin to practice the word together and then all of a sudden one day God moves that family to Texas. Oftentimes what would happen in those circumstances is that as they would move, and sometimes they try to, you know, do some research before they get there. They find a church. They go there. They attend. They like it. They say, hey, God would have us be part of this church. And oftentimes what would happen is that that church would send for recommendation and, and uh, a record of membership from this church to be sent to that church. And their membership would be transferred. Why? That was started in biblical days. That's just not some good idea that somebody did, you know, came up with years and years ago. Um, in fact, we see that in Acts chapter 18. Go, go back just a few chapters over there to Acts chapter 18. I think this is probably one of the first occurrences of what I just explained to you in Scripture. In Acts chapter 18, verse 24. It says, a, a Jew named Apollos, a native Alexandrian, an eloquent man who was powerful in the use of the Scriptures, arrived in Ephesus. This man, now remember, he comes from Alexandria. He's arriving in Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was grounded. He was discipled. He doesn't have it all down, but he's been taught. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught the things about Jesus accurately, although he only knew of John's baptism. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue after Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him home and explained the way of God to him more accurately. And when he wanted to cross over to Achaia... The brothers wrote to the disciples, urging them to welcome him. And after he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace, for he vigorously refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating through the Scripture that Jesus is Messiah. So the, the letter was sent ahead of him. Hey, this man is coming, and when he comes, he will be of a blessing and a benefit to you. He'll help you, and he'll be a teacher and so forth. Welcome him when he gets there. So the idea of transferring membership was started way back then. Um, in Romans chapter 16, we see another similar example of this. Romans chapter 16, verse 1 and 2. It says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Centres. So you would welcome, so you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and sister, or I'm sorry, and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. And who is he writing this to? Some churches that are in Rome. So the bottom line is, he's letting them know that, hey, this lady, Phoebe, who's coming, 
You need to commend her. I commend her to you. She's going to be a blessing to you when she gets there. And so there's word being sent, letter being sent from one congregation to another that she is coming and that she will be a blessing as she serves there. So this is nothing new. And in fact, we see one more example of this, a similar a similarity here in Colossians chapter 4. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, chapter 4, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you as does Mark, Barnabas' cousin, concerning you whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So once again, he's probably likely going to be coming your way, but when he gets there, welcome him. It's the idea of a person leaving one local body and joining himself to another local body. So we see, even though it does not say anywhere in Scripture, thou shalt become a member and join the church, the inference is there. The, the principles are there. Um, so there was more than a simple decision to follow Christ. Upon conversion, they were added to the church in various towns. Um, and I think that's one of the most critical things that needs to happen in the life of any believer. As soon as that decision is made to follow Christ, as soon as God does that redemptive work in their life, it is important that they be attached to the body of Christ so that growth can begin to take place. Um, Once again, loner Christianity is not good. Uh, Someone who wanders, who never goes through discipleship, somebody who wanders from place to place and uh, never really involves himself with the body of Christ, does a disservice to himself, and that person has been given a disservice by not seeing him grounded in those areas. And particularly when it comes to our testimony uh, of what God wants to do in and through us in the body of Christ. So when a believer moved, the church that he or she would leave would notify the church that he or she would go to, to let them know they're coming, to know their status. And I think that's even important in today's economy. Uh, oftentimes, as I was pastoring in, in Tippecanoe, the other important aspect of this was, man, every once in a while, and I hate, I hate to break the news to you, but every once in a while you get somebody who is just a rogue member, if I could say it that way. There's someone who has to have it their way. They're always causing problems. They're right and everybody else is wrong. Uh, there's always, they're always behind the skirmish that takes place. They're always behind that, that, that situation where there's anger and so forth. And for whatever reason, they find themselves being under church discipline. And they oftentimes will, well, bless God, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to go over here. And they leave before church discipline can take place. The benefit of being a member and having membership in the life of a person who becomes that person is that oftentimes, I know we did in Tippecanoe, when a, when a person would be disgruntled with a body of believers over here, that pastor would say, oh, that person's over there. Let me. There are some things that you need to understand. So you, you allow us to have a heads up of what's going on so that we can be biblical in the sense that we want to do what would bring glory to God in and through the circumstance that has caused conflict. So that's very important. Um, but not only were there 
more than a simple decision to follow Christ and, and being attached to the body of Christ, not only when they moved from one town to another was a letter sent, but number three, uh, consider these words that convey committed congregations. I'm, I'm not going to go through every passage, but I'll give you the passage as we go forth. Uh, first of all, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 5, it talks about the whole company or the whole congregation. So in that particular place, the whole body was being discussed. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it talks about the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 23, it says every church in this region. Um, in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, it says the apostles and elders and the whole church. Uh, in Acts chapter 20, verse 17, the elders of the church at Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 23, that we read uh, before we partake of the Lord's Supper, it talks about the whole church. Throughout New Testament, there are pockets and bodies and assemblies, churches, if you will, that have a concerned church leadership, a committed congregation, and I say number three, church accountability and correction. In fact, God's Word is very clear about what is to take place in those circumstances. Uh, if I could just take a moment here. Um, in Matthew chapter 18, if you would turn your Bibles there. Matthew chapter 18. You know, God gives us the wherewithal and the, and, and the prescription to deal with conflict. Um, I am no way going to get into all the aspects of this. Um, because that's what we're going to be doing on Sunday evenings throughout the, the Peacemaker uh, series. But there's committed uh, church leadership, committed congregations who are committed to church accountability and correction. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 says, If your brother sins against you, who's your brother? A fellow believer in the body. If your brother sins against you, go and, re- go and rebuke him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And can I say this? The ultimate uh, goal, the ultimate desire behind confrontation is restoration. It is not to prove a point. See, I'm right and you're wrong and you need to get this through your thick skull. That's not biblical. The ultimate aspect of this and the ultimate priority behind this is reconciliation to God. So that God will be glorified through the conflicts that come. And conflicts will always come. There is no church in America exempt from conflict. And that's why God gives us the ability, the prescription to get through it. So he says, go to that person. And and can I just say this? People are not mind readers. I wish that were the case, but it's not. It's amazing. Every once in a while, I'll see the look on someone's face and I'll think to myself, what did I do this time? And I know you have that same thought from time to time. But here's the deal. If I offend you, the only way to know that I've offended you, if I'm just not that smart, is for you to open your mouth. The only way sometimes your brother will know that you've ticked him off is for you to open your mouth. That's why he says, if your brother sins against you, go and rebuke him in private. You have to go to that person because they're not mind readers. And there's an important little aspect here. I'm just going to jump on just for a moment. It says, and if your brother, what's the next word? What is it? Sins. If your brother sins. You see, what I find out in life, and I find out in local assemblies, that there are people who just tick you off from time to time. Is that true? Is it true? They irritate you. 
It'd be wonderful in a perfect utopia that nobody irritated anybody. But that's not the reality of how we live life. There are times that we get irritated by somebody, and there's times that we irritate somebody. But we have to ask this question. Did they sin against me, or do I just not like what they did or said? There is a huge difference. If they've sinned against me, I have a responsibility to go to them. I don't have a responsibility to tell everyone else under the sun. I do have a responsibility to tell them. If I want God to be glorified and to deal with the conflict at hand. If they just irritate me, get over it. See, there's a big difference between being irritated and being biblically sinned against. Because there's a lot of things that people do that I don't like, and I'm sure there's a lot of things I do that people don't like. But the question is, did I sin? Have I biblically offended in doing so? This is doing private. You don't go to someone publicly. Oh, by the way, Jake, you're such a jerk. Do you understand what you did? No, you don't do that publicly. Sorry, Jake. It's private. But here's the deal. It says, if he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he won't listen, take one or two more with you. So there's a process. I go to that person. They didn't understand what I was trying to tell them. I didn't convey correctly or something. There's misinformation. There's, there's Something's not being understood. I need to take another brother with me and deal with it again. And this is, by the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. So there's another principle. Deal with facts, not what I, not supposition. Well, I think they did this. No, 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 no. You can't deal with I think so's. You deal with fact. He says, if he pays no attention to them, tell the church. Now we've got a body. And I pray that we don't have to go to that third step. If we're humble, and if we're teachable... And if we want to walk in fellowship with God, it should be dealt with one-on-one and, and completed. But I find throughout the history of all of our experiences, someone gets ticked off, they leave the body of Christ, they go join to another church. And they never deal with learning to resolve the conflict. If we are truly biblical in resolving conflict, there shouldn't be a lack of forgiveness. There should not be a lack of love. Because remember, love doesn't think any evil, according to 1 Corinthians 13. When somebody does something that I'm offended by, my first response ought to be, I know they didn't do this on purpose. They must not have meant what they said. Or maybe they didn't convey what they were truly thinking. Or maybe they misconstrued what they were really thinking. But they didn't do it on purpose. Because love doesn't think evil. Then he goes on, verse 17. If he... Pays no attention to them, tell the church. The church gets involved. And the church, if you will, becomes a, a sounding, bread, sounding plate to deal with the circumstances at hand. Um, very important that we follow this. The ultimate goal of correction, or if we call it church discipline, is restoration and reconciliation to God. And there are times, yes, that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that someone refuses to be corrected. They refuse to humble themselves, even though there may be ample evidence of their wrongdoing. And at that point, they may be put out by the church. But we pray never gets to that point. 
And number two, the accountability or correction happens best in the context of relationship. Um, For example, it would be very difficult for me or one of our elders um, to impose church discipline on another church member who attends a different church two hours down the road. Does that make sense? I, because I'm an elder or because I'm a believer or because I'm a Christian or whatever, have no authority to go to some church that's two hours from here and deal with something that's taking place down there. Why? Because God has us to work with in the context of our local church where our people have come in and willingly placed themselves under the authority of the leadership of that local church as members. Um, So that's very important that we understand that. It happens best in the context of relationship. And it's easier or harder sometimes to deal with people that you know and love and respect. But all the more reason for God to be in the midst of it. For His Holy Spirit to be at work. Because we don't want to do these things in the flesh. So we see the principles of membership presupposed throughout Scripture by the very fact that He's given us church leadership in local assemblies. He's given us committed congregation in local assemblies in in parts of towns and villages across every continent. Number three, each of those local assemblies in each of those local towns practice their own church accountability and church discipline and so forth. I'm almost through. God expects us to take care of our own sinfulness within the confines of this local body. So very clearly we see pictures of membership observed by the church leadership, committed congregations, church accountability correction. Very clearly we see these pictures of membership taking place in numerous towns, local places across the globe. But here's one more point. Very clearly we also see that many people refuse to join a church or become a member of a church. And here's a few reasons why, as I've talked to various people throughout the years. Number one, misguided priorities or shallow commitments. Misguided priorities. Well, I don't need to be a member, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. I don't need to be a member of any local church or simply shallow commitments. I don't really have the time. I don't really have the ability to be that committed. Why? Well, because I'm involved in too many other things. Misguided priorities. When it really comes down to it, what is the greatest priority? Serving God and bringing glory to Him. Period. Period. And when I'm more committed to the to my hobbies, and more committed to the things that I like on TV, and I'm more committed to sports, and I'm more committed to anything else under the sun, and let me just say, anything that you give more time, talent, and affection to, more than God has the potential of becoming an idol in your life. But because of misguided priorities, a lot of people do say, well, I just don't want to become a member. Number two, lack of trust. I don't trust them. I mean, bless God, everyone knows they just want my money. I don't trust them. As far as I'm going to throw them, man, I'm not a big one to throw. Bottom line is, we don't trust. But here's the problem with that whole concept. We're not trusting people. We're to be trusting God. 
I asked my pastor at my home church one time, I asked him this question. Man, we're pastor, we're giving $200,000 a year away to missions. And I love how it grows a little bit every year. But I said, Pastor, what do you do about those missionaries who aren't doing well, doing well, it's right with the money that we send them every month? He says, I'm not giving that mission, that money to the missionary. I'm giving it to God. What they do with it is between them and God, and they will give an account for it. When it comes to trusting God's church, you're not giving money to me every week. You're certainly not giving it to the programs of the church. And you're certainly not giving it for your sake of uh, posterity or social status or anything else, because no one else should know what you give. You're giving it to God. I, I know of a church right now that they're struggling financially because people are withholding their tithe because they're frustrated with some things that are going on in the church. Shame. That's not a reason to withhold. Because it's God's to begin with. And you're saying, God, what you give me, I'm not giving back. I'm sorry. I'm taking my marbles and going home. They're my marbles. Who gave you the money to buy them, God? How about hurtful experiences? You ever had any of those? I like what Johnny Hunt says. Man, Christians are some of the meanest people I know. Isn't that true sometimes? It is. Yeah, they're hypocrites, right? So are you and I at times. I'm not going to church. They're full of hypocrites. They're, they're, they're mean. They're, they, they hurt me. Right. If we all had a dime for the time, number of times that someone stabbed us in the back, said something about us, or hurt our feelings, we'd all be wealthy. It's the truth. It's sad, but it's the truth. And that's why, once again, we understand that we are not joining the church for whoever else may be there. We are becoming committed to it for the sake of being obedient to God and following Him, because my trust is in Him. In regards of hurtful experiences, God will heal the wounds. How about an unwillingness to submit to authority? Well, if I become a member of that church, bless God, they're going to make me do things and I don't want to do it. Okay. Walk in disobedience. And there is disobedience because I can show you the scripture in a few moments. How about fear of expectations? If I become a member of that church, they'll have expectations I don't want to fulfill. I mean, bless God, they may actually make me go out and help out at Harvest Fest. No. You know, fear of expectations. Or, number two more, misunderstanding of membership's purposes. We don't understand. We're either not informed or we just don't understand completely what God's expectations for us are. And then, can I just say this? This is not an exhaustive list. There's all kinds of reasons. Between you and God, the bottom line is, and between me and God, ultimately all these things can be rooted in one thing. It's called selfishness. I want to do it my way. I don't want to submit. I don't want to give. I don't want to go full tilt. In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning with verse 19. says, therefore, brothers, since we have boldness to enter into the sanctuary, I think it's talking about the sanctuary of Harvest Bible here. Just kidding. Through the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he has opened for us through the curtain that is his flesh, 
And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who has promised is faithful. And let us be concerned about one another in order to promote love and good works. Not staying away from our worship meetings, as some habitually do, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You say, well, Pastor, what if I'm only here for a little while and then I'm going to be moving to South Carolina or, or Georgia or, or Minnesota in three months? Join, and then when you get there, transfer your membership. It shows a commitment to the body of Christ. And can I just say, I'm only halfway through my message this morning. So, I'm going to close it for this morning, but I want you to understand something. The whole principle of membership is throughout the New Testament. And uh, I know a number of you may be sitting there and goes, well, I'm not a member. And, I, and, and let me just say this honestly from my heart. I'm not looking out here and saying, well, here, remember, you're not. You are. I'm just giving you the idea that principally speaking, membership is throughout the Scriptures. It's there. There are so many leaders. You know, it's amazing. God just didn't give one archbishop to be over everybody. One more reason why I think certain denominations are wrong. God gave leadership to local bodies. Period. He gave congregations in local towns and villages. And each of those congregations, each of those bodies, each of those assemblies deal with the Lord's work individually. Yes, there is the body of Christ, but there's the local body. And it's very clear. We see the, the whole idea of transferring a letter from members from one church to another is, is not something new in the 20th century. This happened way back when. And to go through what the church is designed by God to be totally presupposes the fact that people join local bodies. There's a whole much more I wanted to say this morning, and I'll kind of finish it off next week as we get into lesson two. But I want you to think about it. What does God want you to be a part of? How does God want you to be fit into this? It's amazing, as I say often in 1 Corinthians, how God sets each one into the body as he sees fit. And if you're here, I don't believe it's an accident. Um, I look around and I say, man, this person's been here for a lot of years. Praise God for faithfulness. I look at other people who say they were here, then they left, and then they came back and say, God, thank you, thank you for your faithfulness and restoration and healing and, 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 and mending broken hearts and hurtful experiences. That's awesome. That's what the body of Christ should be. That's what the body of Christ should do. And there are others who sit back and say, no, I just, I just can't do it. And I say, what's holding back? Why not obey? Why not jump full in with all the gusto and say, God, use me however you see fit? I pray it's not selfishness withholding. It's so awesome to be something bigger than yourself. Something as big as God. And His willingness to let us be a part of it. Um, Let's close in prayer.